Hey everybody, welcome back to the iPlay 2 podcast where relatives of famous athletes, entertainers, and musicians get to tell their stories. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, musician Kristen Knievel joins the show. She is the lead singer of the Knievel's Daredevil Band, which performs cover songs such as Highway to Hell, Sweet Home Alabama, Pour Some Sugar on Me, and Born to be Wild. Her grandfather, Evil Knievel, and father, Robbie Knievel, were acclaimed daredevils who performed multiple death-defying jumps that were watched on television by millions of viewers. In 1999, at just 12 years old, Kristen sang the national anthem prior to her father's jump of the Grand Canyon. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for being on it. I appreciate it. The first question I have is, how did you develop your love of music? As early as I can remember, I was about three or four. The Little Mermaid movie just came out. And I was immediately obsessed with the mermaid, the singing in the movie. And it just kind of took off from there. My parents just kind of saw that I had a natural talent for it. And I really enjoyed it. So I just always performed in talent shows growing up. And my dad always really pushed me to sing and develop my vocal ability even further. And I bonded over music actually a lot with my parents. So I became really interested in rock and roll because that's specifically what they listened to. They grew up with 60s and 70s and I grew up listening to what they listened to. And a lot of that was the classic rock genre, the rock and roll genre. So that's kind of where my love for that look, that idea, that performing, entertaining people and music, that was kind of the catalyst for it, I guess. With your parents, which songs, when they came on the radio or you were listening on CD or cassette at home, did you guys go, oh yeah, you just jammed out to Bad Company, Journey, ACDC, Leonard Skinnerd. My dad had a certain playlist, I guess, if you will, before his jumps. And I really grew to love those songs. And some of the songs on there were like Wheel in the Sky by Journey, Detroit Rock City by Kiss, Rocket Man by Elton John, Jump by Van Halen, Right Now by Van Halen. So those particular songs and those bands, when they would come on, would be pretty much like, yeah, let's jam out to this. Although very different things being with him doing a death-defying jump and you singing on stage, what did you take from his preparation that has helped you prepare to go on stage? He's like, I'm going to tell you what my dad told me, what Evil told him growing up. The bigger the crowd, the easier it is. And I still feel that way till this day, because there's something about being in a more intimate setting. I am less likely to get out there and totally be myself. There's something about just thinking that you're so far removed from everybody. The crowd is just kind of a sea of people. You're not really honed in on anybody making eye contact. It's not as intimate. And so he just kind of always told me the bigger the crowd, the easier it is. That's one of the things for sure. Always being on time, always showing up, always following through with what you said you were going to do. You said you were going to get up and perform and do a show and people are here and they showed up. You have to get out there and you have to be professional and you have to act professional. 
so those are kind of some of the main takeaways I would say when you're performing how do you stay in the moment because there's always the next song or something you want to say to the crowd how do you stay in that specific moment to make sure that things are going as the set list should that's an interesting question I feel like my brain is so scattered all the time. I am rarely in the moment, but I feel like really locking into the music itself, the guitar, the rhythm, the notes of the keyboard, depending on the song, knowing where you're at in the song, I guess, kind of keeps you grounded in the moment. But there are still times on stage where there can be a lot going on when you're performing, people talking, people laughing, there's a whole bar there's somebody standing there who's three sheets to the wind going, can you play free bird while you're singing? It's actually harder than most people would think to kind of stay in the moment. But I would say just kind of staying grounded in the music and the rhythm of the song is probably the way that I accomplish that most times. With singing so many different songs, is there a song for you that you really enjoy singing each set? One of my all-time favorites is Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. The other one that we've added in more recently is Dream On by Aerosmith. And I love that song because Aerosmith's my favorite band of all time. And Steven Tyler is, in my opinion, one of the greatest performers and entertainers and vocalists in the history of rock and roll. So for me... It's a real treat. It's a real honor to be able to perform that song because I really do look forward to getting to perform any song by Steven Tyler. Have you ever had a chance to meet him? No, it's terrible. My dad has, and he has pictures with Aerosmith. And it's so funny because I have like so many friends in the music and entertainment industry that are like just a couple of degrees removed from him. I really don't get starstruck, but I don't know what I would do if I was in the same room with him. I don't know what I would do. How did the Knievel Daredevil Band first come about and how did you decide on the name? I started in a local Chicago cover band and it's a really small circle of musicians here. At some point, most of us have performed together or people get rotated in and out of different bands like, hey, we need a guitar player for this gig. So it's really a small circle. In this industry, in Chicago, I think even nationally a little bit, but especially the cover band scene in Chicago, because there's only so many booking agents. Everybody knows everybody. So I ended up breaking off from the cover band that I started in, and so did my now keyboard player and male vocalist, John Garini. When we both broke off, he said, hey, we should do a project together. So he's a Desert Storm veteran, and we both really shared this love for America. We really wanted to showcase that Americana persona and feel. And he said, Knievel is perfect, and you have a name that people recognize, and we should really gear this toward America and get a set list that makes sense and tell some backstories while you're on stage. And with him being a veteran, maybe we could integrate charity events, just kind of all these ideas getting kicked around. And so we've had a few changes since we started, obviously, different musicians going to different projects and things. So we've been going strong for like seven, eight years as the Knievel's Daredevil Band. I did not come up with the name. I think John did actually. 
there were a couple other conversations with some other musicians in the beginning. And they said, well, we want to use your name, obviously. And I said, okay. So that's what they came up with. And I said, okay, cool. Let's do it. (laughs) So the rest is history. With every listener not being able to get to Chicago, what are some of your favorite backstories to tell on stage? There's usually a backstory to a song. So the idea behind the set list too had a lot to do with taking the songs that were in my dad's playlist when he was performing because it was so nostalgic for me growing up. I feel like a lot of people may have moments like this where a smell takes you back, a sound being somewhere will take you back to a moment growing up that's a really important moment in your childhood or your development or it affected you. It's just one of those things where you have a moment. Those songs for me and the physiological reaction of my body, I guess at that time, as crazy as that sounds, knowing when my dad is now coming out to do his motorcycle jump, it was a lot of anxiety. It was a lot of emotion and excitement, being scared. And it's all kind of very much connected and tied into this playlist of music that he walked out to, that he did wheelies to. For example, TNT by ACDC is one of those songs that he would go back and forth and do wheelies for the crowd. Wheel in the Sky by Journey was a song that he played. Jump, obviously, by Van Halen, because, <laughs> you know, Jump, obviously, he's about to do a motorcycle jump. Right Now always gave me chills by Van Halen because that piano intro there, just he would come walking out and the pyro would be going and there would be smoke everywhere and fireworks and the crowd is going crazy. And then they turn it down and then he starts his speech to the crowd and talks to the crowd before he gets on his motorcycle and performs. And those are just moments in my life that are tattooed in my brain. So those are some of the little backstories that we just kind of want to incorporate into the set list so I can share that with people so they can really say, oh, okay, interesting. So there's a connection. It wasn't just we picked random songs to play. When you sang the national anthem in 1999, were you more nervous to sing the anthem or were you more nervous about watching the jump? I was only 12. I was very nervous, but I was probably more nervous about my dad making it across the canyon. As scary as it was to get up and sing the anthem, it was like a two-hour special. And for the first hour, they would just show you everything that could go wrong. It was like computer animation. And then it was, let's put a dummy on a motorcycle and like kick it off the edge and watch it just bounce off the sides of the cliffs into the canyon and be like, oh, its head fell off. I understand it was for the theatrics of it to get people amped up and excited and like, oh my God, this is so dangerous. But for me, it was horrifying. (laughs) So I think probably I was more nervous about him making the jump. If I remember right, I think he broke a bone after the landing. Is that correct? He had a concussion and he, he may have broken a couple ribs. But he had so much adrenaline going that he was able to stand up and like grab the microphone and talk to people. But he totally had a concussion. When he had an injury such as that, when he came home, how was that handled at home? I never lived with my dad day to day. My parents separated when I was very young. So I was always used to, at a very early age, getting on an airplane to go see him and getting on an airplane to go home. So that was normal for me. I don't really have any memory of 
we got to get up and do the normal school routine and pack a lunch and go to school and mom or dad will pick me up. I would go to visit him and there were definitely times when he had injuries and he had a long-term girlfriend that he was with. So either she was there and she had a daughter that was like five years younger than me. So there was always another adult around. It wasn't like he's incapacitated and his five-year-old daughter is going to go visit. But I do remember one of the crashes and I want to say it was Moon Nissan because I specifically remember him living in Salt Lake City and the way he landed, he slid up the pavement and it ripped open the back of the leathers and he had pavement jammed in his skin up into his hamstring up to the back of his butt, basically. It was such bad road rash. <laughs> you just have to lay in bed and turn the fan on because when you have really bad road rash, anybody who knows this, it doesn't ever really dry. It's like always kind of oozing, which sounds gross. It's not bleeding, but it's still an open wound and it's always oozing. He'd go all right, get out of the room. I have to fan my ass. So <laughs> he would have to like roll over in bed and let the fan basically blow on the back of his leg. <laughs> so that I do remember. And that was pretty funny because he just kind of made a joke out of it. And he loved telling people how he had to fan his ass for whatever reason. I don't know. With your grandfather's fondness of motorcycles and your dad's fondness of motorcycles, did you get that hobby as well? Here's what I tell people when they're like, do you ride? And I'm like, well, I grew up in Chicago, so there's not a lot of options for recreational motorcycle riding. When I would go see my dad, he always lived out West. He was in Montana, Washington State, Utah, and he would take me riding and taught me how to ride a dirt bike, but I was by no means skilled at it. And it scared me a little bit because I was a scrawny little girl. I didn't have a ton of muscle tones. He tried to put me on a Honda and it was super, super heavy. And then trying to kickstart a motorcycle when you're a scrawny little kid is a joke. I don't know if you've ever tried to kickstart a dirt bike, but it's awful. It's really difficult if you don't have the muscle strength to do it. It's hard. And then there's a clutch, you kickstart it and then it dies and you get to shift it. For me, I get frustrated easily. He was always like very naturally talented at everything that he tried his hand at. And I was just one of those people who always had to put in more work and effort. And so it was very difficult for me to want to sit there and have him teach me something because he'd get frustrated that I'm not picking up on it. And then I'm getting frustrated because he's getting frustrated with me. And so I never really got into dirt bike riding or even riding a Harley. Not that I would not get my motorcycle license, but when I spent the majority of my time in Chicago, there's just not a lot of options for motorcycle recreational activities as there are when you live out West. And it's just kind of a more of a normal thing. Kids who grow up out here in the Midwest play football. Kids who grow up out in the mountains are super cross and dirt bike riding. With being in a band right now, has the Knievel name opened up any doors? A little bit here and there. We've definitely had some fun opportunities. The short answer to that is yes. It depends on the event. It depends on the crowd. A lot of this business, honestly, is who you know, unfortunately. It's not so much about, you guys are the best band and we're going to pay the best band the best money to perform. It is truly about getting your foot in the door, playing, getting a little bit of a following, getting a crowd, getting some recognition, paying your dues. And that's something too that my dad always instilled in me. He's like, you have to pay your dues. 
I had to jump for next to nothing at monster truck shows. And I had to do this and I had to do that before I actually got a chance at Caesar's palace. Cause grandpa crashed at Caesar's and that was a big deal convincing the owners of the hotel at that time to let him jump the fountains because they knew it was so risky. And my grandpa had crashed. It was great for publicity, but it was a total disaster. So long story short, Yes, it opens doors. But then once you get your foot in the door, you have to prove yourself too. You have to have a stage presence. You have to get out there and talk to people. You have to build rapport with these business owners too. So it opens the door, but it only gets you so far because if you're not willing to put in the time and the effort to build the relationships like any other business, you won't be successful. Coming up in August, you'll be opening for Everclear. How pumped are you about that? We are super pumped. I was born in 86. So I grew up in the 90s and Everclear, obviously in the 90s and the early 2000s were huge. So it's exciting. We're really stoked about it. How did that opportunity come about? The promoter actually reached out to me and it's going to be at an event called Kickstarts and Brawls in Butte, Montana. That event kind of sort of became a thing after Evil Knievel Days stopped. So it's a combination. It's in Butte, Montana. And for people who don't know much about Butte, Montana, it's got such a rich history and it just cranks out some tough people, including my grandfather being one of them. It's a mining town. It just has a, a rough and tough history. It's got this strong Irish immigrant type of history. It's rough. It's the West. It's the frontier. They do this thing called bare knuckle boxing. It's illegal in certain states, but it's legal apparently in Montana or in a certain county in Montana. So they have this event and then they mix it in with freestyle motocross. It's a cool event. I've never been. This will be my first time, which will just be performing. I'm interested to see how this bare knuckle boxing thing goes. With your grandfather being from Montana, how did his museum end up in Kansas? So honestly, really just the simple answer to that is the people who were willing to put in the blood, sweat, and tears and the finances. And the owner of, I believe it's Topeka Harley-Davidson, had the extra square footage to set the museum up the way that it needed to be set up. So that's where it lives right now. And actually, it's getting moved in 2024 to Las Vegas. The Knievel family didn't have any connection to Topeka, but Las Vegas obviously is a good permanent home for it. For you, because I saw on social media you went there a few years ago, what's it like to see your grandfather's legacy and the family name in general honored like that? That's a lot of mixed emotions. I've had some really proud moments. I had some really emotional moments. It was really great to see everything that they were able to rehab or refurbish and rebuild to put on display, like the big red Mack truck that he used to travel around in. It was like a time capsule. The curtains, the chair, the decor, everything is just frozen in time. So it was really nice to see that because that was new for me. I didn't grow up watching him jump in and grow up in the 70s. That was very, very eye-opening and great for me. It was a lot of proud moments, for sure. What is your favorite keepsake your dad or your grandfather gave to you? My grandfather 
it was just a simple autograph. He signed an autograph to me. I have it hanging in my sitting room to Kristen, love granddad. I think he signed it in 98 or 99. It's just something simple, just hangs on the wall. He signed it to me. He put love granddad. It doesn't say evil Knievel. It says granddad, but it's on his autograph paper with his picture. Dad, gee, that's a tough one. My dad didn't give it to me, but I inherited it after he passed away. And that would be his Robbie Knievel doll is one of my favorites. There were only so many made when he started jumping with my grandfather in the 70s. I call it a doll and I've been corrected by all the fans on social media. I guess it's an action figure and I always wanted it. And my dad would never let me have it. And he used to take it out of the box at Christmas and put it on the Christmas tree and say that that was the star because <laughs> he was a major dork. And so he would put that on the tree and that would be the star. And he'd go, oh, it's the star. And I always wanted it and he would never give it to me. And then when he passed away, now I have it. My friend Dom, who is my resident Knievel historian, he is maybe the biggest evil Knievel fan I've ever met. Had <laughs> both of those as well. Really? Okay. And it's funny too, because my dad's doll, action figure, the skin tone on it is so tan. It's just so funny. It just looks like somebody spray tanned it. Speaking of your dad recently passing away, I can somewhat relate because my mom passed away from cancer as well. A couple of friends claimed that he had mentioned it, but then he would kind of recant. So he would get emotional, I think. He would say things and then people would go, oh my God, are you okay? What can I do? And I think he just stopped telling everybody. So I knew he was sick over the years with pancreatitis and sometimes get flare-ups with that and end up in the hospital. And then they would get him stabilized and give him a tune-up and send him on his way. During his final years, he was living in Vegas and then Reno. And I was always in Chicago and I had my family. So I wasn't there with him day to day to see that he was deteriorating. He had fallen and we got a phone call from his neighbor who went over there to check on him because he hadn't seen him outside with his dog. My dad was always out walking his dog. Kind of a red flag, a little alarm went off like, okay, let's have a wellness check. When he finally went to the hospital for the last time, I could tell by the conversation with the doctor that this wasn't going to be one of those situations where they give him a tune up and send him on his way. This was going to be making end of life decisions. So that's when I learned that he had what he had going on when I got there and they went over all of his medical information with me and my head was spinning. I mean, none of us knew. That's a tough situation to be in because there's all kinds of emotions that are involved. It caught us all off guard, I think. I mean, he was tough. He had been through so much. And every time he was in the hospital, he got out. And he smoked marble reds and he drank Jack and Diet. And he was indestructible. Since it's still somewhat fresh, how hard has it been for you to kind of come to terms with his past? It's been very up and down. People say a lot of negative things about social media, but... I have found it therapeutic to constantly put things out there about him, tie him into my grandfather, tie him into the band, because I feel like as his daughter, I have to keep his name out there. I have to keep his memory alive. I've convinced myself I don't have a choice. So that's my job. I have taken 
on that mental and emotional burden for myself. I need to keep putting the personal photos out there that people haven't seen. I love reading the comments from people. I love seeing that the fans adored him and they love and appreciate seeing these photos that nobody's ever seen because I just have a ton of personal photos that I've also inherited and personal effects and things that were in his RV footage, things that are meant to be shared for the people who love him and adored him and looked up to him and people whose lives he made an impression on. To me, it was meant to be shared. Whether it's at a show, you're just walking around Chicago, whatever it might be. What's it like when somebody comes up to you and says, your grandfather or your dad had such an impact on them? Well, it's usually when people see the name. Back in the day when I was going out to bars and getting carded, or if I'm at the airport, they'll ask about it, or people just see the last name, and then they'll tell you a personal story, or they'll talk about how dad or grandpa impacted them, or, oh my god, when I was a kid, my dad took me to see Evil Knievel jump, and it was so amazing, and it was life-changing, and or I set up In the middle of the street in my neighborhood, we were jumping over garbage cans and our bikes and I broke my arm and you're hearing these stories and I'm so grateful and so lucky to be able to absorb the love of the fans, I guess. I feel very lucky and very fortunate to hear that and it's a great feeling. Who wouldn't want to hear that their dad and their grandfather made such an impact on people's lives? We touched a little bit on this earlier, but the flip side to the question of has your last name opened up any doors? I'm curious, has the Knievel name ever been a burden to you? Yeah, there was a time in my life in my early 20s and mid 20s, maybe where I just was sick of it. Because here's the thing, of all the positives, there's also the flip side of the coin where I would see the people who have bad intentions and bad motives who were involved in shady activities that would try to latch on and glom on and are just there to get their face in a photo or to just glom on and say, oh, hey, I was there. I was with him. He's my friend. And then try to coerce him into doing things or try to convince him, hey, you can trust me. Look at, I'm offering this or I can help you or just different things like that. It is just the way of life. Not everybody has positive motives when they're interacting with you. And my dad was such a kind hearted person and a generous soul and a people person that unfortunately, sometimes he wasn't also the best judge of character. So there was definitely a time where I would see certain people continuing to try to wedge their way in or kind of weasel their way into his life who were just toxic people. And at some point you look at that and go, yeah, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with that. And people also make assumptions about you. Oh, Knievel. Oh, you must be rich. You must be this. You must be that. You must know this person. Can we go here? Can we do this? And then when they find out that you're just kind of like, boring and normal and you get up and like go to work like everybody else you have nothing else to really offer them then they move on it's like oh okay so that's what that was about so that's frustrating too so yes there was definitely a time where I felt like it was a burden there were times I'm like I just want to wake up and have my last name be Smith for like a month you mentioned that you had a regular job 
and I know that you have kids. How hard is it to balance the job, being a parent, and the music career? I don't know any different besides just burning the candle at both ends. It's just my personality. I've always been that way. I'm a very active, tenacious, hyperactive person. I've always worked and juggled multiple things. I was diagnosed with ADHD as a kid, so my brain is very much scattered all the time. There's probably better ways to manage it, but I've also gone through life mostly this way, and I've graduated undergraduate college. I have a master's degree. Are there probably better ways to be organized? Yeah, probably. But I mean, that's what I struggle with. And I know that that's what I struggle with. So I manage it just kind of the best way that I can. And I'm not like a big list maker. I write things down if I need to. I mean, I definitely put stuff in a calendar. I have a lot of my friends reminding me, (laughs) people reminding me of things because I don't have a personal assistant. I just try to kind of take it one day at a time. I mean, my children come first, my children's activities or doctor's appointments, all those things. I'm lucky enough to be able to work remotely from home. And then band gigs are usually on a weekend. So it doesn't really interfere. As long as I can have childcare, then I can kind of schedule the band gigs way out ahead of time. So that's kind of the gist of how I manage everything. Just looking at a calendar and seeing, okay, I can fit that in or I can't fit that in. What advice do you have for other working moms out there? You know what? It's really tough. I feel like I am not the expert on that. I feel like we are so in this era of moms should be everything. It's like, well, if you don't want to be a stay-at-home mom and just take care of your children and prioritize your children, you're a bad mother. If you don't want to go out and get a job and help provide for your family, then you're lazy. Somebody mentioned to me, if dad comes home with Happy Meals for dinner, he's the greatest dad in the world. If mom goes out and gets Happy Meals, she's lazy because she didn't cook. I feel like there's all these expectations. And what I'll say is what makes you you and you're passionate about, I think you should still make time for, whether that's working out, whether that's painting, drawing, singing, working, your job, whatever makes you feel fulfilled. Because yes, children are fulfilling. My children are such a blessing, 100%. But If I lost my identity completely in motherhood, I wouldn't be living up to who I truly am. And I wouldn't be setting the example for them of, hey, look what mom's doing. She's still exercising. She's still going out and singing. And when I grow up, I want to pursue my passions and my dreams too. Whatever it is that you like and you enjoy as a mom, try not to lose that and try to make some time for that and try not to feel guilty about it. We've talked how much about your dad. How much did you learn from your mom? What was she able to teach you about being a mom and that work-life balance? My mom just really taught me that as long as you have the drive and the motivation and you work hard at something, that you can achieve it or you can accomplish it. She was there. She was home for us during the week because she bartended on the weekends, but then she was in school taking nursing classes during the week. So she was either studying or she was in class while we were in school or she was having study groups at home. And I mean, I remember her like bringing home her dead cat from anatomy class. You know, they had to dissect a cat, which I always was weirdly interested in because I really love anatomy and it was still to this day, one of my favorite classes that I've ever taken. I love anatomy and physiology. I love working out. I love anything muscle related and all that kind of fun stuff. So I found it very fun and interesting. 
But as far as what I learned from her was she was a tough person. My mom didn't fold easily. She didn't crumble easily. She always got up and did what she had to do and did what she needed to do. And there were really like no excuses for not getting anything accomplished that day. She's always running around cleaning. She's always running and picking kids up from school or going to work or going to nursing school. And now that I think about it, I'm like, God, we are pretty similar now. She's like a little energizer bunny all the time. We're very similar personalities where we're just like, go, 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 go. So I was always kind of watching her just go, go, go and do her thing. She just took an exam to become a psych nurse practitioner. So I feel like she is always burning the candle at both ends, but she's always aiming for more to achieve more. Always instilled that in me and pushed me to do that, to go after that. You talked a little bit about physiology and anatomy, and I know you worked previously with pulmonary fibrosis, and now you're working with autism. What attracted you to each of them? Pulmonary fibrosis I got involved with because my grandfather was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. I had done a little bit of research on it, and that's what he ended up ultimately passing away from. And I got involved with the nonprofit at the time, which was the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, which oddly enough was based out of Chicago. So I started doing some work for them, some spokesperson work, some marketing, event planning, and got involved with them that way. And it kind of gave my grandpa and I something to bond and connect over. So that's kind of what drew me to that. Yes, I recruit for an autism healthcare company. I didn't necessarily go after an autism healthcare company, but oddly enough, I have a four-year-old who is actually on the spectrum and is in a full-time ABA clinic. And I became very passionate about it, obviously, to the point where I actually applied to go back to school to become a BCBA, which is a board-certified behavior analyst, because I was just so intrigued by the progress that he was making at his ABA therapy. And I coincidentally just happened to recruit for behavior technicians who are the people on the front lines who work individually one-on-one with the kiddos doing the ABA therapy. So that just kind of aligned, but I'm glad that I'm working for company and staffing for employees who are doing such important work for sure. For people who might not be as aware of autism, could you talk a little bit more about what the therapy involves? ABA therapy stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. It is a positive reinforcement-based therapy, basically figuring out what motivates and drives that particular kiddo or individual that's getting the therapy in order to motivate them to pursue different avenues, gain some confidence, think outside the box, work outside the box. A lot of people on the spectrum have sensory issues, loud noises, bright lights. Everybody's different. So working on those types of things that are maybe going to hinder your ability to function in day-to-day life. For example, my son, he struggles with functional communication. He has a ton of words. He sings. His vocabulary is amazing. He reads. He can put the entire United States. I think I would mess up on all the East Coast states. He can put little countries in all of South America, North America, Europe, intelligent beyond recognition. But when it comes to simply coming up and saying, mommy, I'm hungry, that's his big struggle. So ABA therapy is really using something that's going to reinforce the child or the person, whether that's 
a snack, a game, a toy, music, physical touch, different things in order to get them to really get out of their comfort zone and motivate them. It works very well for individuals on the spectrum. It's not a one size fits all. Everybody's at a different level of functioning. So it's going to look different for everybody, what their treatment plan is going to look like. One thing I would say as a parent, this is all very new to me. My son was just diagnosed last summer. He was an early intervention because he's a twin. He has a twin sister. And I also have a six-year-old. So of course, you can't help but compare your kids and their developmental stages and milestones and things like that. So immediately when I noticed a difference, I was like, okay, let's ask the doctor. Let's make this appointment. Let's get this referral. Anybody who suspects anything with their child, you know your child best. You go with your gut and it just can't hurt to get that assessment and rule something out and say, okay, maybe they just need some extra speech therapy. Maybe they just need some extra occupational therapy, which is also something that kiddos will get also with ABA therapy. It's huge. It's pretty much the gold standard right now in the behavioral health industry as far as therapies go for people on the spectrum. I've had a great experience with it. So I've seen the progress that my son has made. You mentioned your son sing a little bit. Do you and he ever sing a duet? Absolutely. He has about four or five toy guitars. He's had a couple of real guitars and they've been broken because they just don't hold up. They're wood. (laughs) They just, for whatever reason, we've lost a couple guitars. I ordered him actually fake prop microphone. It looks like a real microphone. And then my kids play with my mic stand. So we put on music videos. My daughter loves to sing too. She's definitely more of the limelight performer. I see that in her. I see a lot of my performer side in her. Gunner, my little guy on the spectrum though, he will stand in front of the TV and just watch videos. He loves Tom Petty. He loves Tom Petty's hat. He wants to wear a hat like Tom Petty. He wants to sing in front of the microphone. He wants to hold the guitar. He loves Billy Joel. He loves watching Freddie Mercury play piano and sing. And for a while there, all we would listen to over and over was Bohemian Rhapsody. And this kid would run around singing Bohemian Rhapsody, word for word. So, <laughs> so yes, there's a lot of singing and dancing going on in my house, for sure. Before I let you go, your dad having a memorial coming up in early July. Could you give us a little bit more information about that? We are having a two-day memorial. July 1st is going to be a church service and burial. My father was cremated, so we're actually going to be burying his urn. His headstone will be actually set up and placed in between my grandfather, Evils, and my great-great-grandmother, Emma Knievel, in Butte, Montana, in the Mountain View Cemetery. And then we're going to have a church service, visit with family, go have dinner, do all the things. And then the next day is actually going to be the celebration of life slash motorcycle run. There is a little honorary Evil Knievel loop around Butte, Montana. So we're going to be starting at the Copper Canyon Harley Davidson, taking off, driving around Butte, Montana, around the Evil Knievel loop and ending at a place called the Freeway Tavern, which is owned by a family friend. She's hosting a big party there, which is just going to be really, really great. One of my dad's really close friends that he went to high school with and she owns it. So we're all just kind of going to end there, hang out, tell fun stories. Hopefully there will be live music. But my goal is also to get fans, friends, anybody who's ever interacted with my dad 
to get up and kind of have an open mic session and tell funny stories and just laugh and just have a good time in his memory and in his honor. The Robbie Knievel Memorial, once again, July 1st and 2nd in Montana. Is there a place online that we can go get more information on that? Honestly, just my social media. I've just been kind of posting updates on my personal Facebook page and my Instagram and also the Robbie Knievel fan page on Facebook as well. We'll have the most up-to-date information. I pretty much just posted in there because that's where a lot of the fans go to get information. Kristen, I want to thank you for your time joining the iPlay 2 podcast today. It's been great to hear your story, hearing your memories of your dad and your grandfather, and best of luck with the memorial and also with the concert in August opening for Everclear. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.